0: The following podcast is an Embassy Row production.
1: Diving right in is what we do on Shaken and Stirred. Welcome back to another week. I'm here with my co-host, Tom Astor, who's talking to somebody off camera, but you can't see because this is a podcast, but I thought I'd let you know because he likes to whisper and have a little secret. Would you like to know what I said? I'd love to know what you said, Tom.
0: No, I wouldn't. I'm not going to repeat it.
1: Okay, well, whatever. I'm Nigel Barker. I'm in New York. Uh, it is a, a, a sort of a beautiful fall day and time of the year. We've actually, this might be the nicest day we've had in a long time here. I'm looking outside my windows and it's beautiful. In fact, it's inspired my drink today. But before I get on to my drink, Tom, what are you drinking?
0: I'm drinking an apple teeny. Oh. Yeah, I will show that garnish with an apple. I like to do what you normally do with your cocktails and explain to all the listeners that you get open the bottle of vodka and pour some in and then you open the bottle of well, in my case, and you can't see this because it's podcast, the latest batch of my homemade apple juice.
1: Very nice bottle that's in. You put your apple juice
0: in bottles, that's why they're grand. Yeah. Well pff, what do you expect? I know. Put it in a shake with some ice, mix it, pour it into a glass and drink it. So do, do then, people generally say set- and, and then remember that you've got a podcast and have to have do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and then remember again. Podcast getting even closer and doing it again. Anyway, chin
1: chin. Before we chin chin anything, um, let me tell you- Oh, how- by the way,
0: sorry, I just say garnished. You can see on top of my drink with a slice of apple from my orchard.
1: No, I love it. I love the fact you're you've actually bottling your own apple juice, but in a glass bottle, no less. It looks like a bottle of wine. It's not alcoholic, though, is it? This is non-alcoholic. Hey. It's just apple juice.
0: No, it's straight up, totally kind of organic from the tree to the press into the bottle back then.
1: And absolutely fabulous. looks amazing. Well, as I mentioned, I've been inspired by the sort of beautiful foliage that's going on here, the fall foliage, the oranges, the reds. I've been, I guess we've already started to talk about Thanksgiving and, and, you know, that time of year. And I, I, I built a fire outside today as well. So I'm really kind of getting into the spirit of things. I thought, well, I wanted something kind of warm and yummy. And I was looking up kind of fall cocktails. And I came across one called the Scotsman's Vacation. Uh, which is a rather fun name. And it's, I've made it with uh, a Balvenie, um, the 14-year-old <clears throat> Balvenie whiskey, uh, which is, I guess they they cask it in Caribbean casks, they call it specific. It's, it's like Balvenie Caribbean cask, 14-year-old whiskey that I used. And I love Balvenie. I've always been a fan. My mother's been bringing me bottles for years when she comes through duty-free. She lives in Scotland, as you know. And um, I've never actually had this one before. This is a new one she got me. But it, it's, really kind of delicious. It has the sort of vanilla undertones of a Balvenie, but then the Caribbean cask, they're actually old rum casks from the Caribbean. So you get that spicy rum flavor um, into the whiskey as well. So it's a kind of a mixture of a a whiskey with a a sort of a spice undertone to it. So rather delicious. And the Scotsman's Vacation is paid with this, about one and a half ounces of the Balvenie, Oloroso sherry, three quarters of an ounce, Angostura bitters, I put a couple of dashes in there, a lemon twist, Um, And here's the fun part, and it takes a bit of preparation. So I started this yesterday, this cocktail, if you can believe it, because I made made a simple syrup using toasted coconut. So I got coconut flakes that I bought in the local supermarket. I spread them on on a toasting sort of sheet, put it in the oven, toasted it for 45 minutes, came out, toasted brown, put it in the boiling water, poured in the sugar, and it's equal parts, a cup of sugar to a cup of water, boiled it down, made my simple sips, strained it through, put it in the fr- fridge, cooled it and used it today. And it's now got this delicious coconut taste too. So how about that, Tommy boy? Cheers, mate.
0: Sounds very labor-intensive, ginger not you? Mm, delicious though. I don't really prepare my drinking, I just drink.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you are very, very good at it. Now, before we get on to our guests, some booze news. It's a little
0: bit of booze news. Now you told me you've got a bit of booze news from the UK. I got a bit of UK booze news. Again, we're not really allowed to mention lockdown and all that stuff. But a guy called Peter Wells, who was from um, Bedford, and he was a great great grandson of, of a founder of a brewery, uh, the Wells Wells and Co. 2017, he sold his family, his 150 year old family brewery to Marston's, which is a big, big company over here, big brewery over here. Charles Wells was the brewery, and he sold it for 55 million quid in 2017. He was being squeezed out of the market by these mega, mega breweries. And he's decided to sink 14 grand of his own money into restarting another brewery to sort of more akin to the small brewers that are kind of up and coming. But he has the basically, when he hit the start button, we went into lockdown. so. This is a guy probably the only person I can think of who's starting a massive company and hasn't put stop stoppers on it during lockdown.
1: Could have been perfect timing in a way, really. I mean, it's both difficult, but also perfect, because if you're going to pivot, pivot at the beginning of, of a lockdown, so you could be perfectly positioned because when you look at the alcohol industry, all, there have been booming sales in home sales, right? But not booming sales. Obviously, the restaurant industry is kaputski, so they're not doing any of that. the bars, the nightclubs, the restaurants, which has really made it's very difficult for a lot of alcohol businesses, especially the ones which were designed to sell to bars. The guys who were selling online, the guys that were selling to people in their homes, they've done enormously well. That portion of the business has done very well. So if he is able to position himself and market and not have the, the, the infrastructure, having to sell to restaurants and all that kind of it, it that bit, it could have done very
0: well. But also what we had, and for my business that I've got here, which has come from grinding all my wedding business, which I've got here, we use a big brewer, we use called Green King, which is one of the bigger brewers in this country. And when the whole, when this pandemic started, they actually said they'd take back all unused beer that is sitting, you know, that is sitting around. I mean, unopened. I think we had fun at the beginning of lockdown because we have these kind of pegs of beer that have been opened that we, we obviously realized needed need to be drunk. So we had a, we had some social isolating bubble or whatever it's called, um, fun with that. and. Um, and the rest of stuff the stuff, these big breweries, they took back and will replace as and when you need them. So I don't quite know where, who came up with that idea, but I, I would imagine he's been sacked because it's very, from a business point, I mean, you know, it, it was everybody and a lot of beer got just t- literally tipped down the drain.
1: It's uh, a tragedy, travesty even. I've got a little bit of booze news to. I'm going to uh, jump on, which is rather fu- kind of funny more than anything. But as you may well be aware, the Supreme Court sort of process is happening here. We are trying to confirm a-, a new justice. Now you may remember when Kavanaugh was was confirmed, he talked about how he liked a beer, and there was a whole sort of mention of his beer drinking and what have you. And now we have Amy Coney Barrett, Judge Amy. Homi Barrett, who is basically going through her confirmation process. And um, she was being interviewed by Senator Blumenthal, who's a Democrat. And he mentioned that he hoped that Barrett had rested up after her marathon session of questioning the day before, of which Barrett admitted that she had indulged in a drink to unwind. Uh, and she said, you know, I did have a glass of wine and I'll tell you that I needed that at the end of the day, Barrett said laughing and Blumenthal replied, well, let me just say on that kind of point, you have the right to remain silent, which, um, you know, is sort of a, having a bit of a laugh between the two of them. As we know, there's been a lot of sort of head going on, but even sort of to further the point, she had a bit of a slip of the tongue earlier uh, and she was being inter- interviewed by uh, Senator Sheldon who is also a Democrat, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And she said, I will approach every case with an open wine. I mean, open mind. And it, it was literally a slip of the tongue. So it's actually quite funny. When we think of our sort of Supreme Court justices, you know, we have to now really imagine them with a glass of wine, a beer, a whiskey. I mean, for goodness sakes, if you're going to be sitting there in that robe, at least you can have as, as, a, as a good drink, right?
0: I think, uh, I think the last thing they should have is a drink.
1: Maybe the last thing, the last thing in the day, by all accounts, but the fact that she said she would approach every case with an open wine, I think is rather funny by by accent. She meant open mind, apparently.
0: Um, And I will say, I'm picking up on the fact that she said she needed a drink at the end of the day as opposed to wanted one.
1: Yes, well, hey, you know, don't quote me on that. I wasn't there, but but as I say. And actually, we have a, a rather wonderful guest on today, someone who should be rather exciting for you, Tom, as you are, a bit of a country buff. So let me introduce this wonderful guest of ours. Now, I had the pleasure of introducing our guest this week at the Hopeland Gala last fall. And Hopeland Gala, by the way, for all of you out there, is Deb Furness, Hugh Jackman's charity. The extraordinary thing. We'll talk about them and and what they do, but they're incredible with adoption and with for children and for families. And it's one of the most amazing uh, foundations I've ever worked for. Now, she's been recording country music for over a decade. But this year, perhaps because of the zeitgeist of our times, she has made a long-awaited splash in the country music scene, recently becoming the first Black woman to give a solo performance and sing her own music at the Academy of Country Music Awards in its 55-year history. Please welcome the brilliant and talented Miki and Mickey, so Yay. lovely to have you. Ah,
2: oh, what an introduction. And you are absolutely right, the Hopeland Gala, is one of the most amazing things I've ever been a part of. It's such a beautiful, beautiful foundation.
1: Well, you made it, you know, extra special. And, you know, I, I didn't, this is the thing. I mean, this is why it's rather exciting to talk to you now, because that particular evening, you know, you even spoke about your desire for ch- to have children and to have a family and to start a family. And, you know, and here we are sort of Fast forward, you know, like seven, eight months later, and you're not having an alcoholic drink with us, are you? You're not having a cocktail. I'm and, not. And why?
2: Well, I'm, I'm having a mocktail. It's an Italian soda, but I'm pregnant. I'm having a baby.
0: That was the best baby.
2: It is wild. Let me tell you, this is a, a very different feeling that I've ever felt in my life. It's a miracle, what makes it even more special. Again, my husband is adopted. So adoption is something I've always wanted to be a part of as well. But this is my husband's like first like family member that's his. And that's just really, really cool.
1: No, absolutely unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable for both of you. But I think, you know, it's what, what, it's, it's funny life, right? How you meet someone and they, they sort of publicly say I, I want a family i'd love a family and and i you know and i think adoption is amazing and there we were and hopeland's message is all about adoption and about bringing children you know into homes and what have you and you know, and, and i I've, I've certainly you know grown up with foster brothers and sisters and what have you as i grew up so i'm very much aware of what that how important a family can be and that's what hopeland's message is all about and you were there you sang such a beautiful song and you know you opened up your heart and here we are, a, a sort of under a year later, and it's almost as if you were blessed that evening. Like right? sort of- I
2: think so. I think the Hopeland Gala, like, blessed me and was like a precursor to me having children. It's honestly, I'm still, it's unbelievable what your body can do. And it's a miracle. It really is.
1: It's truly a miracle. But you know, this obviously, you you, you know, that's probably the most amazing thing that's, (laughs) without a doubt, the most amazing thing that's happened this year, and probably in your life, would be one of those most amazing moments. But you've had quite a year. And I mean, I say that, and we've all had quite a year, right? So, you you know, a really weird, odd, difficult, some people awful, but it can also be silver linings and amazing moments as you obviously got pregnant. But you have also, as I mentioned, been a country singer for over a decade, and recently, most recently in the past year and a year or so, you've really just become sort of it's sort of blown up, and it's become very very exciting. So for you, this year has had, for better or for worse, too, because there's there's a lot of politics involved. to some element to your success, but you know, I mentioned you're the first black woman to sing solo at the, at the country music awards. Just take us back a moment. This year. At the Beginning of this year, when things started to unravel, what were you thinking? Because you were about to put out an album, everything started going backwards and we everything shutting down. What were you thinking at that moment?
2: It was such a crazy thing. Like I was getting ready to release all this music and film these music videos and start putting out all of this content and literally everything just like flatlined. It was, it just it stopped. And I it was hard because I was sad. But literally, not a single person in the world wasn't affected by this pandemic. so was it personal to me? So I had a really hard time feeling "Woe is me, more so as like, this is happening to everybody, and that really sucks. So I had no plan. I didn't know what to do, but, but five
1: I was in the making, right? Five years had been since your last album, or whatever yeah.
2: so-, so I've been working on this, yeah. Yeah. And I, the baby came all along with that. So I was like, I took this time during the pandemic when everybody was kind of sitting still and trying to figure it out. I remember calling my publishers and my label. I said, I don't want to get behind on this. Like, let's try to figure out how to work during this pandemic. We can't just like stop for no reason. We can't let this stop us from, from moving forward. So I was writing the whole time. And then you know, all this social unrest happened, which has been insane as well.
1: So, so that's an interesting segue because, obviously, within country music, and you know, we 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 had Ryan Bingham on recently, okay. uh, and he was an amazing guest, and was was also talking about Black Lives Matter and the protests and the situation okay. within country music and what have you, and obviously his perspective is of a white guy looking, singing about, you know, whatever. He sings about but he looks at his audience and he's also, you know, motivated to make a difference and doesn't like necessarily the status quo. But for you, it's much more personal. I mean, you are a black woman. First of all, there are very, very few people of color in country music. So I have to sort of go back a bit and think, why did you get into country music in the first place?
2: Well, I got into country music because my grandmother, Loved Dolly Parton. When I grew up and I would go over her house, she would have Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers VHS tapes hanging on the back of her wall, along with Still Magnolias, along with the Roots collection VHS tapes along her her wall, and that's what I watched when I went over her house. So I loved that. And then I saw Leanne Rhymes sing the national anthem before she was Leanne Rhymes, and I just fell in love. And it's that that slogan, you see it, you can be it, really rings true. And I saw this girl close to my age singing. I was like, well, I can do that. I can sing what she can sing. And I didn't see it as a a color thing. I saw it as this girl that could just sing and had this beautiful voice. And it was as I got older and grew up is when color was brought into it. And it was like, oh, you're you're black, you're supposed to sing R&B. Every single woman that you meet, (laughs) I've met so many women of color, especially black women. And when we say we sing, they always want to put us in the R&B category without question every single time. And that was frustrating. It was frustrating when I did get into country music, even when I was recording country music, It was always it's the the conversation was we need to make sure that you sound really country because people aren't going to think that you're authentic and genuine. So you have to sound extra country. But I grew up on gravel roads and I grew up in Crawford, Texas, and my neighborhood was right on the edge of former President George Bush's ranch. Yet I have these people telling me whether or not I'm country or not. And that was difficult.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. That's very <laughs> it must have been ridiculously painful and 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 obviously absurd. But it's the stereotype, right? It's the yes. but, but, but you like the sound. It was the sound that moved you, and and and, and the writing. Okay, so then you decide I want I'm going to be a country singer at some point, right? So, you, but there must have been before you sort of started signing contracts. There must have been you know people just looking at you going,
2: outsider.
1: Yeah, like what's going on here?
2: Yeah. The side, I was always one that I got. They were like, that comes from you. This is you singing. And I was like, yeah, that is me singing. Why not? Why do I have to, why is, does someone look like me? Why is it not possible for me to sing country? And the reality of it is, is when you look at the origins of country in America, the banjo came from Africa. And back in the day when country first started, there were a lot like, Black people were teaching a lot of these musicians. And even when you go into the Country Music Hall of Fame, one of the first things that you see are Black people, I'm assuming slaves, on their back porch, picking and dancing and playing.
1: That is very interesting. I think that's a very, very important sort of statement, actually, I think, that just in general. I mean, I think we all so often, you know, we forget exactly our roots, actually, don't yeah. we? We forget where things came from. and we. We, we we assume that because of some because some, you know people take things they adopt things and they decide it's theirs and they, they they you know they even someone like Elvis Presley you know his music is has so many black undertones to it and he'd admit it but it's sort of people often will will just forget about where he got that from where that soul <laughs> came from right and you know I, I'm curious as to also the the black community. Sorry,
0: I'm, I'm going to pardon in. Here. This is even weirder because when I just, I'm, I'm a uh... I like, I, I love country, always have. And also I grew up learning to play the guitar with Lightning Hawk, Johnny Hooker, you know, all those all those, prop, those blues guys just listening to their records, which my parents had. And I later on in, like, about 10 years ago, took up banjo, Five Street, so clawhammer banjo, bluegrass banjo, which I then got quite proficient at and loved. And I always kind of, you know, you always listen to country music, you listen to that sort of stuff, and you'll start, you're slightly thinking it sounds quite Irish, jiggy and everything. But until this minute, and as a banjo player, I can hand on heart say, I hadn't forgotten where the banjo came from. I actually didn't know that. But what I did know is you see people with fiddles and you're like, ah, oh, that's the sort of Irishy, you know, kind of Celtic thing coming, or, or whatever, or a gypsy thing coming in. But actually I didn't know the banjo was from Africa, and I'm very pleased I know that now. Yeah. No, it's absolutely amazing.
2: Yeah, it is.
0: It, no, I think absolutely, also, did you know that? I did not know it. I had no idea.
1: But again, this is the thing that you, so much of our one's history, and I, that's what I love when I find something new, is that so much of, of, of the history of the world is being rewritten or just forgotten, actually. Mm-hmm. Simply just, we just decide, it's not, they, they know, but no one ever talks about it. Yeah. But I'm also curious as to the Black community giving you the side eye too. I mean, do the, does the Black community also go, you think country?
2: You know, actually they don't. A lot of times, even when I was first... Starting, I guess I did get a couple of side eyes, not because they're like you sing country, but they're like, Are you sure you want to sing country? Are you sure you want to get into that? And those were the kind of side eyes I would get. But since I've changed my thinking and have tried to open the doors and bust down the doors of country music for all people of color, I'm getting so many more. Black people that are like, I love this kind of music. I've just never been able to get. I've never gotten the opportunity to be taken seriously. And now seeing you makes me feel like I can be taken seriously. So I'm not only trying to open the door for myself, but opening the doors for all people of color.
1: So this year, right, obviously this year we've had the, the pandemic and there's you trying to thinking about trying to release an album trying to think what's going on you've got these a beautiful lineup of, of songs and and you know the, the, quite frankly your music videos too have got some real power to them and you know, everyone out there has to check you out at mickeyguyton.com because they're, they're beautiful the videos and i'm sure they're elsewhere on youtube and everywhere else but there's obviously we've had a lot of unrest and for obvious reasons. I mean, quite frankly, the fact that it hasn't happened earlier is, is more shocking perhaps than the fact that it happened now. But quite frankly, thank God it has. And Black Lives Matter and the protests that have not just rocked this country, but all over the world um, have, have resonated. Obviously, for you, you, know, you have a, you had a song um, called Black Like Me. Uh, and now this is a song you decided to release early before, because during what was happening, so tell us about that moment when you started to see what was happening in the country and the the, sort of the contemplation of, I'm gonna release this song.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, the song Black Like Me, I wrote this song based on a book that I'd read in college about a white man named John Howard Griffin who through radiation darkened his skin to look like a black man. And in the 1960s, he went to the deep South to see what it was like to be a black man in America in the 1960s. So he truly stepped in someone else's shoes and sacrificed his life because he ended up dying from skin cancer. And to see someone white have a completely come out and have a completely different perspective because he really stepped in someone else's shoes. Like he went from being accepted in society and safe to being fearful of his life and and just from changing his skin color. And that book always stuck with me. And then me being in country music and me having to sing at concerts where the Confederate flag was waved at me or me living even in California and seeing cops pull my husband outside of our home because of false claims and him thrown to the ground, from cops, and me having to still sing in this genre, country music, and act like it wasn't happening. All of that was building up inside of me before I released this song. Wow! And not only, and then just my fight in country music and me not allowed to sing certain types of songs, Yet I'm seeing white men put trap beats in their songs and R&B melodies and call it country and be accepted, and I wasn't. And I was, all of that was built up inside of me. So during all of the social unrest, you know, I'd saw Ahmaud Arbery hunted down in broad daylight in Georgia and murdered. I saw that reading all the stuff about Breonna Taylor and how she got murdered inside of her own home. And even thinking about it now, you know, two cops got fired for brutally attacking a porcupine. But they didn't arrest the cops that killed a human being. And then on top of that, um, watching George Floyd unable to breathe for eight minutes, which I think every person in the world saw that video. I couldn't even watch it. I saw maybe 15 seconds of it and I had to turn it off. It was just too much. And all of that was built up inside of me. And I had this song, Black Like Me, I wrote it last year. I wrote it March of last year and I had it and nobody knew exactly what to do with it. The label loved it, but we didn't have the right moment or the right approach. So nobody, it wasn't really necessarily going anywhere, but I was fighting for this song. So after I saw those three deaths in a row, I just put the song out on my social media. I didn't talk to my label about it. I didn't even tell them that I did it. I just put it out on my social media saying, this is for Ahmaud Arbery. This is for Breonna Taylor. This is for George Floyd. And I just released it. And it got such a response, so much so that Spotify asked to release it on Blackout Tuesday. And I was like, yeah, it's yours. Take it. And I didn't do any kind of promotion. I didn't do any kind of press release because in moments of social unrest, the last thing you ever, or at least I ever want to do is capitalize off of the moment. It wasn't about that. This was about human rights and about social justice. And so I released the song and it went from there. And I've never seen a response from a song like that before. No, well,
1: I, it was. It's it's so apropos and so, so beautifully done, and and so powerful. And I, I'm sure even your your own probably your own rendition of it just became even more powerful when you could feel the uprising around you. Because I felt because you know you can imagine one can imagine at least, but you know you writing that song at one point it's very personal and it's obviously you know that other people feel you. But in this moment when you released it. It wasn't just you; it's a groundswell, and it's not just you know people in general, everyone just the, the like, yeah. it just was an explosion, and you know I saw it, and and people were sharing it, and and it, and it was like, everyone was on their zeitgeist, everyone was sort of talking between each other. People who knew you at Hope said to me, "Oh, isn't this the Mickey that you introduced?" And mm-hmm. you know, it was just a, a, sp- a very special moment, and so you know I'm sure that many people are saying thank you for, for writing a song like that, and you know obviously there's a, a a tragedy in there but are you seeing so what have you seen since then i mean so that moment happened and you know it was that also instrumental for you being on on the uh, the country music awards and and getting to sing and be the first black woman to sing so was that a part of it
2: actually it wasn't so i had released another song this year another very polarizing social conscious song that was not my intention i was just writing about my feelings but it's a song called "What Are You Going to Tell Her," and it's about the oppression of women. And there's so much oppression of women in the country music world was my initial inspiration, but it branched out to be every woman because it's still the oppression of women is an is an a pandemic in itself. And I'd sang this song, and we were getting ready to release that song this year. And then the pandemic happened. So the ACMs had heard this song and they asked me to perform that. I was supposed to perform it in April. And they still honored that this year.
1: Keith Urban accompanied you
2: yes, well on
1: stage, Which was amazing. And by the way, this song doesn't strike me as being sort of the most country song either. I mean, it's yeah. sort of a beautiful kind of love song, ballad type vibe to it. And you listen to it. I'm, I was just sort of swept away it doesn't even have necessarily a recurring sort of melody it sort of has its own just it's just a song it's a beautiful yeah. song
2: it's just a song there's no genre attached to it it's literally just a song that poses a question of how do we make the world better for our daughters the world is what it is right now but how do we make it better for that 7-year-old little girl that wants to sing country music right now what are we going to do to make it a safer industry for her? That's kind of the questions that the song was asking. Yeah, it enabled me to sing at the ACMs. I don't remember where I was going with that. I'm so sorry, y'all.
1: No, of course. I think you know when you we mentioned that you were the first Black woman to mm-hmm. perform, which in itself, I mean, not surprising, but surprising, right? It's a, sort of one of those. You're not shocked, but God, how shocking! I mean, you know, yeah. it's sort of outrageous more than shocking. I guess maybe that that it hasn't happened before. But you know, you, when you did sing it though, you, you were singing in the pandemic, so there was no audience, right?
2: There was no audience.
1: So, what? Just for a moment, explain. You know, describe to people what that's like from a performer's standpoint before we get into the actual kind of the rest of the questions on that. But I'm curious, yeah. how was that feel for you?
2: Well, first of all, I was still nervous because Keith Urban was playing with me and that I had to get over that because, you know, he's such a legend and his wife is Nicole Kidman, and he's just one of the most amazing musicians. And I remember turning around, looking at him and his hand was shaking. And I was like, what are you doing nervous? I'm the one that's supposed to be nervous before this performance. And then when he started playing and you look into the audience, it was actually a very somber moment like i knew i was singing in front of people but it still just showed the state of where we are as a country as the state the world is actually in that this tiny virus has stopped us from being able to be humans with each other and to hold on to each other and to be in the same room as each other that was really sombering and very sad for me
1: now i'm sure yeah. there's a part of me though that, that is it a I mean, I just there's a large part of all of us, I think, that is very angry with what's happening in the world right now in yeah. general. right? And, you know, this is a question which, you know, I mean, in all due respect, but, you know, I wonder, you know, had there been an audience full of your peers there listening to you as there should have been, what the reaction would be? And I'm sure perhaps they would all be politically correct and all you know, cheer you on, maybe give you a standing ovation, what have you. But is that really how they all feel? And I and I perhaps shouldn't say that, but I I feel like I have to say it because I, there's so many bigots out there, there's so many racists out there, there's so many people who are opinionated and within the industry as well as outside of the industry, not just people who listen, but people who write this music and sing it too. And I'm curious as to when you look into the audience in general, you mentioned earlier you've been at concerts of your own where people wave a Confederate flag in your face. So, do you, I mean, is it almost a blessing in disguise to have no audience? or If you had looked into that audience of your peers, do you think they would have all been looking back at you saying yes?
2: Yeah, I think some of the peers would be, because one thing I did experience when I walked off that stage, I didn't realize the historical aspect of it. I just saw myself as a country singer getting this opportunity and walking off. I did see a lot of my peers swarm around me and lift me up in that moment. And that was something that was truly special that I have not ever experienced. To answer your question though, I don't think all of the peers up there feel that way about me, no. Right. I don't.
0: And, and <laughs> so, can, I, can I just, sorry, it's a thing I've just crossed my mind. Two firsts here, as the first uh, black woman to sing at the Country Music Awards, and my great-grandmother, this is pretty unconnected, but so similar. My great-grandmother was the first female MP, Member of Parliament in this country. Wow. Very similar scenario, right? You're looking around, and actually, a lot of your peers don't really disagree. I mean, a lot of the men she'd been friends with were really disapproving. A lot of women were disapproving, you know, of this, like, hang on, a woman's place is, you know, not doing what you're doing. That's a man's job. And, and she just went straight in. And... um. By all accounts, it was a real pain in the ass. She kind of stopped and started talking to the wrong person and didn't follow the protocol, and super feisty and just did her own thing and went in there. And at the time, people were really freaked out. I mean, this is, it's exactly, it's, it's completely different, the story, but it's
2: completely powerful. Yeah.
1: shows that you need trailblazers. I mean, ultimately, someone like yourself is blazing a trail right now, and that we need more people like you. And, and that was one of the things I was also curious about is within country music, are there people in your footsteps? Are there more Black performers in country music? I mean, do you see that happening?
2: Yes, there are some men. There's a guy named Kane Brown. There's a guy named Jimmy Allen who recently asked me to do a duet with him that's on his album that I've gotten to sing with. But there's not nearly as many as I want to. But that's when I've realized the power that I have and the position I have. I've been in Nashville for a very long time and I've made a lot of connections. And I've realized that even though I'm on my own climb within this industry, I've got to bring every other aspiring person of color that wants to pursue music. And that doesn't just mean Black people. That means people of color, period, including the LBGTQ community. It is my job to use the influence that I have to give them the opportunities that they would never have. Because so often, again, because of the color of our skin we're put into boxes that makes everybody able to make sense of who we are. And a lot of times those opportunities aren't, those doors are never open to them. And it is my job to use my platform to help them because when I make it, we all make it. And it, opens the genre that much more. And I'm finding some very, very talented people of color that I talk to on a daily basis that are like, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have these opportunities. I wouldn't even know where to go. And that is my job. And that's something that I take very seriously.
1: And what is your fan base like? What are they, how are they reacting to everything that's happening to you now and and to the world at large? Are you finding that it's changing, it's growing and people are sort of discovering you?
2: It absolutely is growing. I'm getting a bigger black following. My L the L B G T Q community is following me. People that want equal justice, black, white, whatever, are following me, and that's what that's the audience I want. I want an audience of people that accept accept you for everything in your entirety and who you are, not who you aren't. And it has it has expanded. I get people all the time saying. I didn't listen to country music because I didn't see myself in it. And to be honest, I still don't, I still don't see myself in country music. You could look on the charts right now. And I think there might be three women on the charts in the top 30, the rest are men, white men. And so I still don't see myself in country music, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to make that something that is seen. And I'm fighting very, very hard for that.
1: Do you feel that you need to, and I only say this because of your song you performed at the ACMs, what it was very much a sort of non-genre type song. Do you feel that you you, you need to produce country sounding music or can you not, or how, you know, I mean, people's careers evolve, right? And so, you know, you maybe were doing one pop at one moment, sort of rockish at another, and maybe, you know, you have a country sort of tilt to another album. Do you not... Can you not just be a performer? Can you not just sing your thoughts and your words and your heart and let it come out the way you want it and maybe it's a bit country and maybe it's a bit rock and roll. Who knows, who cares? Or does it really have to be, you've got to pick them up?
2: This, That's a really good question and I'm gonna answer it very easy for you. I have been writing and trying to write songs like every other country artist and just write country music for so long. But it wasn't until I wrote these socially conscious songs that someone finally listened to me. It was like any like I wasn't enough before. There was always a reason why my music wasn't good enough. Always, it was really really frustrating. I even wrote a drinking country song that people in my label were just like, "Eh, I'm not sure. It was frustrating. It put me in such a dark place, and it wasn't until. I started writing my feelings about what is happening in the the racial injustice that I've experienced that I've even been given a platform, and that sucks. It's a beautiful thing it's it's a huge responsibility that I had zero intentions of taking. I was kind of writing just out of of desperation and and, and therapy for myself, and they turned out to be songs that people responded to, but when I tried to just write a song, like write just a country song that I love, people weren't listening to me.
1: Do you think though that in a way, if you look at it, think of all the greatest, sort of the, some of the greatest songs and some of the greatest writers, whether it's even a sort of a Bob Dylan or whoever it might be, Woody 3 or whatever, they, it, it is from the heart. It is because of protest. It is because of hurt. you know you you can 't sing the blues unless you've unless you've had the blues i mean you know so that in an element you know of what you're saying to me rings sort of maybe that you this was a necessary part of your life this pain and everything else to come through otherwise how do people relate perhaps i don't know
2: yeah that's true absolutely I mean everything happens for a reason i I feel like during this time this pan- so many things had to happen for people to hear me and here we are. And and people are hearing me, you know, a pandemic, social unrest, the oppression of women, people are finally hearing me. They're like, oh, that's what she means. And I'm like, yes, I've been telling people this for years. I've dealt with this for years. And so it's, yeah.
1: Did you ever feel like giving up?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. As early as this year, (laughs) when I wrote my song, What Are You Going to Tell Her? That was the end of my rope. To be honest, I was in this industry and as a black woman that knows what discrimination feels like, to see white women within your same industry dealing with the exact same discrimination, like it's not just, I'm not, it's not just a color thing. Like women across the board, black, white, in the industry, at the record labels, In publishing companies, everything. It is full on within this country music industry. Women are getting discriminated against. And it is hard to see. And it's frustrating to see. And having to watch that and showing no signs of changing. And you see so many white men getting signed as artists at major record labels named John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, all of them the same. And they're getting signed. And as early as today, I met this girl named Christy Hoops, who's been in Nashville for four years. And I mentored her on this program for the Today Show. And I heard her sing, and it brought tears to my eyes, and she can't catch a break. And that happens, and it's frustrating. And for me to watch her, yeah, I wanted to quit. Absolutely. Our voices are not heard, so even as early as probably today, I've been like, "What am I doing here? I'm still fighting to get accepted and get the same opportunities in country radio, and it's very frustrating and it's hard to see.
1: And is that because you're not getting played by country radio and and by and by sort of the disc jockeys out there and what have you who are not simply putting your music on and or you know, is it a combination of you know the audience itself? Why are they so you know, adamant on listening to men singing, for argument's sake? I mean, why, why is that the that they specifically just want to listen to guys singing? I mean, it seems like a strange situation.
2: It's a very strange situation. They say, you know, country radio, they do research. But it's 2020. You're calling people at 6 o'clock while they're at dinner and asking them, To listen to three songs or and and hear the ones they like, like that is not, I don't know. That's ancient to me personally. I don't think that that's right. I think women absolutely want to hear women. We just need the chance. It's just I think it's the fear. I think it's the country music industry has become so corporate. They have lists, and there's so many artists. I I I don't know the exact answer, but I know that it needs to change. (laughs)
1: Can social media be h- helpful for you in this? Because you know, it's one of those things where I, and I've been blasting your music around my house all day today, just so you know. I love to get, whenever I have, a, you know, an artist who I'm, who's going to come on, I really like to get sort of as deep in as possible. And you, unless you play music loud, I feel like you can't really feel immersed. <laughs> And, you know, and I, my daughter came home from school today. She heard this and she came up and she was like, you know, Daddy, what's this? You know, and she was like really getting into it. She's like, oh, I love her, I love her. And I'm like, well, you'll get a chance to meet her one day. She's a really wonderful lady, And you know, and, and she she saw a video of you when you were pregnant in the picture, you know, from the ACMs. And she's like, oh my God, and she's pregnant. And it was just a sort of a, it was just a, you know, a woman's story. There you are on stage, pregnant, singing, a first black woman on a stage at the ACMs, and you're pregnant too. I mean, what a symbol for the world to see during these times. How do you feel that you are affecting country music? And and what is, you know, and just the sort of people at large, what are you hoping to do?
2: I am hoping to bust open that door for people of color, that there's so many people of color singing country music because people are so mistaken about, especially, even black people and Mexican loving country music. Like we love country music. Like we are country, like black people are so country. If you just go out into the South, you will see. And I think it's so important for that to be represented. And that is a huge goal of mine is to give black people an opportunity to sing whatever kind of music it is that they want to sing, and it doesn't have to just be R and B, and it doesn't just have to be hip hop.
1: My wife is from Alabama, and she's from Fairhope, Alabama, no, right, down, right down, right down, and my wife is Chinese. So you say the the the, the black community, the Hispanic community, the Chinese
2: community. The
1: point is, is that it doesn't, you know, this is the thing. It's it's not a, a color at mm-hmm. all, right? It's people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the thing. It's sort of, and if you listen to my wife's father, who's fully Chinese, hundred percent, he literally, if you heard him on the telephone, you didn't see his face, you'd think he was Elvis. Yeah. And, and sounds like Elvis. And it's, you know, it, it's, it, but because, you know, it's it's not about the color of his skin. It's just about who he is as a person. And he grew up down there and he loves all the things like anybody else does in Alabama. And mm-hmm. but of course, and he hates all the things that, he, that everyone else hates about Alabama too. Right. Yeah. So, but it's, the same time, he 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 loves being there, and he doesn't leave. People, you know, so often people are like, "Well, why don't black people leave the South if they don't like the South?" Or why don't they leave? Because it's your home. It's because <laughs> where it's where you're from, and you love the food, you love your family, you love the weather, you love the place, you love the smell, you like the feel. You know, the, of course, you know, but leaving and running away is not the
0: way, is it? It's you've got to stick around and fight.
2: You've got to stick around and fight, and that's why I'm still here.
0: Can I bring up one of the most famous black country singers? of all time, Charlie Yeah. Oh. who back in the 70s was forging the same path, was, you know, was a country singer. Yeah. You know? And I love the fact when you're sitting there going, just going down to the south, you know, black people are country, you know. I mean, clearly, I've just taken the liberty while Nigel, Nigel was talking, I mean, to look, he was the best-selling performer for RCA Records since Elvis Presley back in the 70s. So, since Charlie Pride, though, it ha- there hasn't been this episode since, I guess, Charlie Pride, right? In the back of the 70s, when he was one of the biggest selling artists of all time.
2: Well, you had Darius Rutger from Hootie. But yeah, I don't like, as far as like what Charlie Pride is, you're right.
0: Yeah, it's- I mean, selling Elvis back then. But I mean, it didn't start this kind of movement of like, it didn't, it didn't basically spur a lot of more country singers, you know?
1: Tom, Tom, look at politics. I mean, you have Obama and then we have Trump. Right. So it's, it's one of those funny things where I don't know what it is, but sometimes it seems to be that it's one step forward, two steps back. Right. It's almost like a dance. It's almost, it's almost yeah. like we're dancing. It's sort of what's going yeah. on with people, you know, but, but it seems to like you have someone like, who becomes so famous, so successful. And then there's a knee jerk reaction of people who go like, who are terrified and do all they can not to, to, yeah. to go, or, or they think you're a token. Like we have it in fashion. We have a, someone who will hire a black model and they'll be like, oh, do we have a black model? we have a black model. It's like, we don't need, we're not talking about a black model and that quite frankly, I don't, the fact that you even know her color bothers me. I just, can yeah. you just not put people who are right for the job and are going to do this right, forget about the way they look. And of course we need to have, you know, we need to be inclusive, but it's this, this sort of token aspect of, you know, oh, now we've ticked that box. Now the ACM says, have a black screen
2: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Very, very weird. I, I, but listen, so I want to, I, this is, we've talked a lot about this and, and, and we can talk and talk and talk. And I think it's it's so current, obviously. But I do also want to talk about a couple of other things too. One of which is just some of your fun music that you've got out there as well, which you kind of mentioned that you have some songs about drinking and stuff like that. And obviously we, we do a lot of drinking on Shaken and Stirred, normally at least. And maybe it's, it's my drink that's been um, encouraging me to get a little fun. <laughs> Nothing like a little whiskey to really kind of, you know, rattle the nerves. But um, you have a song called Rosé on your, your album as well, which is kind of odd. Where did that song come from?
2: So that song, I wrote that song about two and a half years ago. And I remember I was, this was right when I was starting to really just try to write songs that were important to me and really cool. And I thought, why don't women have their own drinking song? And I started going down the list of all the different songs, you know, especially in country, you know, they sing about whiskey, they sing about tequila, they sing about beer. Beer doesn't agree with my stomach, gives me gas, all the things, I don't like it. And then, but the one song that nobody ever wrote was Rosé All Day. And I was, of of all the Instagrammable walls with the greenery and the neon pink rosé all day, nobody had written that song. So I had wrote that song. (laughs) The story, it's kind of sad that was like one of my, like, I just love to drink rosé and I love this song. And I remember I, I played it from my label and they were like, yeah, I don't know if that's right.
1: <laughs> what What's that about? I mean, is, is they just, they thought that perhaps you shouldn't be singing it or they, because it's a great song. It's very catchy. It's a
2: great song. It's a, it's a song.
1: It's great... super fun. My wife was singing it, by the way. So Chrissy, who you may have met at Hopeland Gala. Yeah, yeah. It on, And she was like, you know, she loves country music. I mean, she's from Alabama, too. So you got to understand it's really in her blood. And she yeah. was like, oh, I love, I like this. And she was like, you know, kind of getting into it in the office and what have you. And mm. kind of doing a little jig in the, in the room. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is great. You know, it's but so it's so funny that you would say they had that reaction.
2: It was a great, fun country song. that I just wanted to be a girl that wrote a fun country song. And it was still met with, with no's. And I truly believe if I were a different color, it would have been a different story.
1: Well, do you think, you released it on your album, Bridges, which came out on September 11th of this year. So congratulations on that. How has it been received? What happens nowadays when you release an album in pandemic? I mean, is it the same situation? Because you can't go and tour with it.
2: You know, it's really hard, like the response that I've received, the the articles that have been written up about it have been really, really positive, but again, we're stuck inside, so I have no gauge of how things are reacting because I can't go and and perform it. I can't go out and do shows like I normally would have been doing right now. But the reaction from what I've seen has been really, really positive.
1: Have you been singing on Instagram? Have you been doing all, that, all of that sort of stuff that some people have been doing?
2: Honestly, I, this sounds going to sound really bad, but right when the pandemic happened... I was so Instagrammed out by all the Instagram live performances and stuff. It was the, and I was so frustrated with the social unrest. It was the last thing I wanted to do.
1: No, I hear you. I completely understand. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, you know, we mentioned we had Ryan Bingham on and, you know, he's been sort of singing a song almost on a daily basis, I think, to fans and not just his own music, just any old music. And not professionally produ- produced, but simply in a barn up against the wall with his guitar, and he's literally yeah. speaking, like, requests. Oh, yeah. you like that song? I'll sing it, you know, tomorrow I'll sing that song. And he kind of learned it, and Zach, Zach sings it. And I'm just yeah. sort of... Because how else does one stay connected to the fans and to the people, and how do you keep singing? And, I mean, I'm so shocked, to be honest, to take my hat off to you, that you can even have the sort of morale to sing at all, considering the situation, but...
2: It's been very hard. It's like... Especially within my community, when you're watching the world burn down around you and seeing people in their houses acting like everything's okay, that has been very difficult for me to do because I haven't been okay. Like I have not been, it's just been really, really hard to see this election coming up, all of the things like I've been really trying to figure out how to navigate that. And still be a positive force for people because it's, it, it seems like it's just gotten worse and worse as the pandemic has happened.
0: There's good news. Think this is good news as far as you're concerned. You're having a baby. Yes. Right? When's be- it, when's February 12th. So maybe Valentine's Day.
2: I know, it's a love baby. Yeah, yeah.
0: Beware oh. of Valentine's
1: Day because both my children were conceived on ba- Valentine's Day. Oh. So, you know, now <laughs> Valentine's Day, my, my wife and I sleep in opposite rooms just in case we have another. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, just in case. You're like, not anymore.
1: Choose <laughs> enough. Um, you know, and you know how romantic one's life can be when both your children were conceived on Valentine's Day. It's oh, true. Yeah. The one day of the year, I can get it. No, <laughs> oh God! What What does the year ahead look like for you? Then you're going to have the baby, but are, are you going to also simultaneously you have the album that's just been released? It's yeah. all kind of together. Are you going to? Well, what are you going to do? I mean, is you, are you going to yeah. be just like okay, here's the album, and now I'm mum?
2: Yeah. Well, I that was just the EP, and we are finishing a full-on album for next year. And I have so many songs that I've been writing for that that are really strong and I'm really excited about. So we're working on that. I'm doing a Christmas song. Yes, I'll be having this baby, but also looking to get on a tour. If that opens back up, that'll be the next thing is getting on a tour and playing these songs out live.
1: Fantastic. Well, everyone should check out the album Bridges and download it and what have you. And mickeyguyson.com is where you can Find out about everything that Mickey's doing. Mickey, before we let you go, we have something called Last Orders um, on our our little show. It's very simple and easy. Here we go. Strangest gift a fan has ever given you?
2: I had a fan give me some vitamin C. (laughs) And that was just like, it wasn't strange. It was actually really sweet. The fan was trying to make sure that I stayed healthy, but it gave me a big thing of um, vitamin C, which I was kind of scared to take because you don't know.
1: Oh, that is really funny. Looking after your health. Got to love that. Yeah. All right. How about this? In the movie of your life, who would you have play you?
2: There's so many new actresses. What's the one actress that plays in that show Hollywood? Laura Harrier. She would play me.
1: Laura yeah. Harrier. You know what? I love Laura Harrier. And actually, I know yeah. Laura Harrier. So Laura Harrier goes to the gym that I have called The Dog Pound. Oh, ha. She's a beautiful actress and wonderful.
2: Yeah.
1: I should keep up with what she's doing. That's a, she's fantastic.
2: You have to watch that show Hollywood. It's really, really good.
1: Yeah, no, she's and I've actually photographed Gloria before. Yeah. What gets your goat and what floats your boat, Mickey?
2: What floats my boat is organization. You know, everything happening.
1: a little OCD, are you?
2: Just I guess so. I guess so especially during this pandemic and learning how to organize stuff when it's organized. Oh, that floats my boat. What gets my goat? When people act like you're inferior to them, that's one that will get me going. And I have seen that a lot.
1: Oof, Especially in
2: Nashville. I've had that see you in five look where it's like, okay, I see you. (laughs) That's Uh, what I
1: do. Okay. Yeah. We hear you there. All (laughs) right. If country music didn't work, what would you want to do? What would be next?
2: Um, I would definitely do something in the music business, artist development, management, even voice lessons. That was something that I thought about having before music started happening for me. I was like, oh, I'll be a vocal teacher and help these artists figure out how to get into the business. And that was something I would do for sure. Maybe even start my own record label now that I know that I'm pretty good at doing their jobs.
1: There you go. Watch out, guys. No, <laughs> Forget about that. We're going international right here. Yeah. Love that. Okay, and finally, shaken or stirred?
2: It depends on the mood. Sometimes it's stirred, sometimes it's shaken. Yeah. That
1: is a lady's prerogative, and we like that. Yes. <laughs> you may be both. You may have a little yes. bit of this and a little bit of that. A little bit of,
2: this, a little bit of that. A little bit of shaken, uh, a little bit
1: of stirred. I, I, I feel a country song coming on.
2: Yes.
1: you feel like writing a Shaken and Stirred song for us, by all means, you know, we we would be... I'll
2: give you 10%. I'll give you 10%.
1: Fantastic. I'll even come and shoot the album cover for you. Yes! How fun would that be?
2: Yes. It'd be awesome.
1: Mickey Guyton on Shaken and Stirred. Thank you so much for for bringing it, for being passionate. And I understand that, you know, you've got your family around, you're in your bedroom right now. I feel like, (laughs) wow, I'm in Mickey Guyton's bedroom. Congratulations with everything. Good luck with the baby. And we hope to see you really, really soon.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken Instead. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe.
0: See ya.